0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman, a senior fellow with the Center for International Policy who assesses President Biden's current hardline approach to both Russia and China, and alternatives to a costly new Cold War. Journalist and author Todd Miller, who describes what he calls the border industrial complex, which persecutes immigrants as it enriches major corporations. And Crystal Mello, an opponent of Virginia's Mountain Valley pipeline, who talks about the ongoing campaign to stop construction of this 300-mile-long fossil fuel pipeline project. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: In conjunction with the European Union, United Kingdom, and Canada, the Biden administration has imposed sanctions on China for that nation's human rights abuses against the Uyghur ethnic minority in western China. Beijing reacted quickly, imposing sanctions of its own on European and U.K. lawmakers and think tanks. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken accused the Chinese Communist Party of committing genocide against Muslim Uyghurs with its mass detention of a million people in re-education camps, forced sterilization, and the use of forced labor in picking Xinjiang's lucrative cotton crop. Starting in 2017, Chinese President Xi Jinping waged a massive crackdown against the Uyghurs with the goal of forcibly assimilating the ethnic minority group into mainstream Chinese culture. China denies rights abuses and says its camps provide vocational training and are needed to fight extremism. Now Chinese online activists are punishing foreign companies that have joined a call to avoid using cotton produced in the Xinjiang region in protest of the government's repression of the Uyghurs. Western brands including H&M, Tommy Hilfiger, Adidas, Nike, Converse, and Calvin Klein have all been targeted for boycotts by Chinese nationalist consumers. In the midst of a pandemic-fueled 40% increase in lumber prices, timber companies in Oregon are fighting to retain tax breaks which date back to the early 1990s. An investigation conducted by Oregon Public Broadcasting, The Oregonian, and ProPublica found that timber companies, increasingly dominated by Wall Street real estate trusts and investment funds, benefited from the tax cuts at the expense of rural counties, which have lost $3 billion in revenue over the past three decades, starving local services. According to the report, small-scale timber owners suffered major losses in last year's wildfires. Others lost valuable equipment. But large corporations like Weyerhaeuser and lumber manufacturers remain very profitable. Proponents of restoring the tax breaks told lawmakers that the industry's strong position means there's no better time to restore the tax. Jody Weiser, founder of Tax Fairness Oregon, a tax watchdog, told state representatives fires that burned only 3% of the state's private timberlands were no reason to delay restoring taxes that could fund sheriffs' deputies, mental health workers, and economic development officers in rural counties that bore the brunt of revenue cuts. During the wave of racial justice protests in the summer of 2020, Portland, Oregon City Council revised its zoning code with a goal of encouraging the building of new affordable moderate-income housing. The new zoning code, called Residential Infill, allows four-unit houses to be built on virtually any residential lot. Six units are allowed if half are reserved for low-income wage earners. The code limits zoning for new single-family homes to 2,500 square feet, down from the previous limit of 6,500. It's estimated that the zoning overhaul will help build 24,000 more housing units in the city over the next 20 years. Portland's zoning reform could be a model for many of the West's growing cities, from Seattle to Albuquerque, which are experiencing a critical shortage of affordable housing. As housing prices skyrocket, it's mainly nonprofit groups that are building affordable units, while private developers rely on scarce federal tax credits to build moderate-income housing. While resistance to zoning reform remains strong, especially in wealthy white communities, the depth of the affordable housing crisis has advanced proposals to limit single-family zoning in both California and Montana. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: After years of hostile relations between the U.S. and China under President Trump, the Biden administration got off to a rancorous start when Secretary of State Antony Blinken engaged in a very public and angry verbal exchange in his first meeting with top Chinese officials in Alaska on March 18th. The U.S. ran down a list of grievances on trade, human rights in Tibet, Hong Kong, and among the Uyghur Muslim minority in western China, as well as rising tensions over Taiwan and China's military expansion in the South China Sea. China's top-ranking diplomat, Yang Jiechi, countered by charging the U.S. with hypocrisy on human rights and its treatment of minorities, criticized U.S. foreign interventions and accused U.S. officials of possessing a Cold War mentality. In response to a question posed during an ABC TV news interview broadcast on March 17th, President Biden said, I do, when asked if he believed Russian President Vladimir Putin was a killer, and then went on to pledge that Mr. Putin is going to pay for Russian interference in the 2020 election. The Kremlin responded by recalling its ambassador to Washington and warned of the possibility of an irreversible deterioration of relations. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA intelligence analyst from 1966 to 1990. Here he discusses his recent article titled Team Biden, Diplomatic and Strategic Failure, which assesses President Biden's current hardline approach to both Russia and China and alternatives to a costly new Cold War.
2: I would like to think that in taking a tough line with both Russia and China, which frankly makes no strategic sense, uh, whatsoever, but I'd like to think this is a classic case of the uh, the velvet hand and the iron glove that Biden again is just trying to show a domestic audience that, okay, well, maybe I'm a Democrat, but I can be as tough as a Republican. And maybe show uh, Putin and Xi Jinping that there's a new sheriff in town, and it's not going to be what you encountered for the last four years. I I would hope that's what's going on, and that we'll we'll see more uh, conciliation and more diplomacy. But even after allowing for that, when I look at the appointments he made, and I agree with President Ronald Reagan, who said personnel, is policy. So the people he selects, certainly this is true in domestic policy, because they're quite progressive and they're saying some very progressive things and supporting progressive ideas. The people he's selecting on the foreign policy side of the equation, Or to me, the old school types, what Barack Obama in his wonderful memoir refers to as the foreign policy blob who've been thinking the same way about issues for the past generation when we need to think differently. But the idea of taking on China and Russia at the same time, and frankly in doing so, I think we've driven them into each other's arms. And right now I would say without question that this is the closest Sino-Russian policy we've seen since the 1950s and the great falling out over nuclear weapons in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That took a long time for the two sides to recover from. But now they are dealing economically, they're dealing politically. Uh, China's taking part in military exercises in the Arctic with the Russians. The Russians have cooperated with the Chinese in exercises uh, in East uh, Asia. We haven't seen this kind of cooperation. Uh, Even in the 50s, there were limits on military cooperation, which was with was the undoing of the Sino-Soviet relationship uh, in the first place. And what I find so ironic about this is when you look at international issues, we don't have great disagreements with either country. There, there aren't great geopolitical differences. Certainly they don't uh, equal the similarities on arms control, on disarmament, on nuclear weapons, on Iran. Both Russia and China signed the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action, the Iran Nuclear Accord both russia and china are in favor of limiting the nuclear arsenal in uh, north korea kim jong-un's arsenal do all sides agree on doing something about international terrorism china's been very supportive of the west the united states and the red sea on this issue of piracy in fact the only real military facility they have outside of uh... The chinese zone of influence is in Djibouti, where they can operate uh, with their naval vessels so There's no good explanation for why we want to go after both of them in this way. And I think both sides, I see it in Putin and in in Xi Jinping, but in different ways, would like to get back to a more formal, more diplomatic uh, relationship uh, with the United States.
0: The international crisis of climate change. In order for climate change to be effectively addressed, on a global scale, you need to have cooperation, especially among the largest economies. Tell us a little bit about your vision for how the United States, Russia, and China could come together to more effectively take on climate change.
2: Well, I think it was excellent in the first week that uh, Biden, as promised, went back into the Paris Accord, but but that's not enough. Uh, I think Biden uh, has to take a page out of Obama's book, when Obama conducted very intense personal diplomacy with China to bring them into the Paris court. And that's just one more reason why we need to deal with the other major uh, polluter. When you think of greenhouse gases, you think of uh, China and the United States. If they can't come to an agreement, there's not going to be an international agreement that's going to be effective. And what's interesting to me is when you read the documents that come out of the Pentagon in terms of American national security and the challenges to national security and the threats to national uh, security, climate is the number one foreign policy national security problem as the Pentagon sees it. And again, four years, the Trump years, four years have, have been lost in this fight. So we're, we're falling behind at an alarming rate. And I would add to the climate problem, the other basic international problem is the pandemic. The importance of an international organization like the World Health Organization, the importance of Sino-American conversation and cooperation in dealing with the pandemic. And here's where China also stole a march on us. Uh, We're hoarding vaccine. They're giving it away. At least 50 countries have gotten free supplies of a COVID-19 vaccine, but we used it to get Mexico's help on the border. We're using it as a kind of coercive weapon, and that's not going to get the solution to the problem that we need.
0: That was Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA intelligence analyst from 1966 to 1990. His most recent book is titled Containing the National Security State. Find links to Goodman's recent articles, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The number of families and unaccompanied children from Central America seeking refuge in the U.S. is now on the rise along the U.S. southern border. The spike in people wanting to emigrate to the U.S. is part of a decade-long pattern, where these numbers grow beginning in March before declining in the summer. This year, the numbers may be greater, due to a backlog of demand because of 2020 coronavirus border closures and lockdown policies. Meanwhile, congressional Republicans have flocked to the southern border for press conferences and photo ops on board border control gunboats outfitted with multiple 30-caliber machine guns as they attempt to blame the increase in border crossings on Biden administration policies, while there's no clear evidence making that connection there's growing concern about the overcrowded, poorly-equipped facilities in which thousands of immigrant children are being held. President Biden says ending the Trump policy of forcing migrants to remain in Mexico while their cases are adjudicated is a moral imperative, while asserting the Trump administration handed it a deliberately broken immigration and asylum system. Your reporter spoke with journalist and author Todd Miller about how lucrative government contracts and campaign contributions have resulted in policies that have militarized the southern border under both Republican and Democratic presidents. Here he talks about his recent article titled The Greater the Disaster, The Greater the Profits, The Border Industrial Complex in the Post-Trump Era.
3: And You really have to, to, to understand the border industrial complex. It's a complex that goes back many decades, even into the 1970s. But for our purposes, If you look from 2008 to 2020, you have 105,000 contracts given out by Customs and Border Protection and ICE and Immigration and Customs Enforcement to the tune of $55 billion. That total, $55 billion, is the same total of all the border and immigration enforcement budgets combined from 1975 to 2003 or even more than that, the, the total cumulative budgets for those 28 years are $52 billion. So that goes to show you a number of things. One, the massive shift to the privatization of what is the border, I would say, immigration enforcement apparatus. And two, just the historic increases of, of the budgets that are given to border and immigration enforcement. If you go back to 1994, and I say 1994 because that's the year several operations, Operation Gatekeeper, Operation Safeguard, Operation Hold the Line, went into effect under the Bill Clinton administration that formed the strategy that we still have on the border today. And that strategy is known as prevention through deterrence. The first idea was that you build up urban areas like Nogales or San Diego or Brownsville or El Paso with concentration of armed agents and barriers and walls of some sort and technology. So this idea of those three things of a border wall system blockading these traditional places where people would cross more safely and then forcing people to circumvent those areas and go into deserts like the Arizona desert, which would be a deterrent because it was it's too desolate, dangerous, even deadly. And so... The, the formation of the border industrial complex follows these, these inc- ever-increasing budgets, the increasing amount of money and contracts going to different companies, like the big military companies. Um, there's also security companies uh, like Deloitte. There's um, transportation companies like G4S. There's private prison companies like GeoGroup and CoreCivic. In a report we for the Transnational Institute, we analyzed 13 of those companies.
1: And, and we
3: l- looked at them, what those 13 companies of the border industry did during the 2020 election. So we first we looked at the presidential election, and we didn't know what we were going to find. And what we found in the presidential election, that these companies, the 13 companies that, that we analyzed, donated three times more to the Biden campaign than to the Trump campaign. And so then you start getting into the mechanisms of... The border industrial complex. Um, in 2016, you, you saw that these same companies were, were actually donating more to um, Trump and the Republicans. And now, who knows, you know, they might have seen that Biden was most likely going to win this election. Um, overall, these companies also donated 55% to the Democrats and 45% to the Republicans. Whatever the reason is, what it amounts to, from the company perspective, From the influence perspective, giving those sorts of campaign contributions, and we can talk about lobbying, too, because there's a bad aspect of it as well. It's like you give a vote, and your vote's a win-win, no matter who wins.
0: We're talking about a lot of commitment of billions of dollars on border security on the U.S. southern border. But none of these funds, of course, are being applied to the root causes of immigration in Central America, where people face daily threats of violence, drugs, gangs poverty, corrupt governments, and the like, just say a word, if you would, about the allocation of resources here and how they could be better spent.
3: Yeah, that's a great, great question to end on, actually, because when you think of the border, the border is the quote-unquote solution. It's asking the wrong question, right, about a solution to a problem. It's like, oh, like you say, there's all kinds of factors in Central America that that are causing people to be displaced. Yet the solution is a border wall. Many communities are uh, facing really you know, hardships, on, and particularly in Central America, in the, in the rural areas of Guatemala or, or Honduras. Small farmers have been just marginalized for a long time. Uh, many don't even have cash. And, and now you have this intensifying effects of climate change on um, farmers in what is known as a dry corridor in, in Central America, are they're not able to depend on the rains for the harvest anymore and so sometimes harvests are being lost and that leads so many even millions of people into crises and those sorts of things if we we lived in a world where people were coming together and honestly looking at the problems in the world looking at issues such as climate change such as poverty such as um, corruption such as all these different factors that um, cause people to to be displaced, I think um, that we'd have a lot more holistic, better solutions that would be for the well-being of all, um, rather than the way that things are being quote-unquote solved in this very moment, which from the United States perspective, a worldwide displacement crisis, a displacement crisis in Central America is being quote-unquote solved by a border wall.
0: That was journalist Todd Miller, author of Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. Find a link to his recent article titled The Border Industrial Complex in the Post-Trump Era by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On March 23rd and 24th, police extracted and arrested the last two activists engaged in the Yellow Finch tree sit, which lasted for 932 days. The trees were in the path of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a 303-mile frack gas pipeline that's being constructed from mountainous West Virginia through southwestern Virginia. Opposition by landowners, whose property was taken by eminent domain, and by climate activists, has been fierce. The fracking fossil fuel drilling method releases methane at the wellhead, from pipelines, and by the final user. Methane is 100 times more harmful to the climate than carbon dioxide over a 10-year period, which is the time frame climate scientists say we have left in order to avoid irreversible climate disaster. After the two tree sitters, Acre and Wren, were removed, the trees were cut down and the activists were held by police without bail, even though the pair are only charged with misdemeanors. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Crystal Mello, a 40-something mother and grandmother who spent three days at the Yellowfinch Tree Sid in 2019, helping, with many others, to delay construction of the pipeline, which is now two years past its completion date and $1.5 billion over budget. Mello lives near the pipeline route in Montgomery County in southwest Virginia, a bucolic landscape that's been scarred by pipeline construction. Here she describes the struggle to stop the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP, and where things stand now.
4: There was a professor from Virginia Tech, Emily Satterwhite, who walked down to a Big piece of equipment, and she shut it down for fourteen hours. She was from Blacksburg, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh! Okay, so now we got professors locking down the thing." So, me and a friend would light around and take pictures of the sites, GPS time stamps, and all that. Pictures of violations. So we had gone up Yellowfinch and just to check it out before the tree sitters were even there. And then, I mean, it was just like days later, (laughs) all over the news is like, tree sits at Yellowfinch. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, it's finally in my neighborhood. So what they've done all around us in two years have torn up these mountains.
5: Crystal Mello, why did you decide to sit in a tree?
4: It was because uh, some folks had uh, did a blockade in West Virginia and were charged with terrorist charges. Um, that's so extreme compared to what they're doing to our neighborhood. So in that moment, I felt like, you know, they think it's just the younger generation that care. And I call them kids because I'm older and I have kids their age. So no disrespect, they are fully adults, But, you know, they're getting terrorist charges, terrorist charges. It's going to take a whole bunch of people to stop this pipeline. And it has to be all of us. And that's what made me do it is because I feel like I'm an everyday person. And um,
5: I'm definitely not a terrorist. So you spent three days in the tree. What was it like for you up there?
4: It was beautiful. It was There was a supermoon that weekend. I felt like the trees were giving me high fives. Um, and I think watching a butterfly fly from above it, instead of looking up at a butterfly, actually looking down on the butterfly, it made me realize how um, connected and how little we all are in this whole big scheme of things, you know, like it just put things in perspective a little better for me in life in general.
5: The MVP is way beyond its original time frame and budget, and they still don't have all their permits in place, do they?
4: They are missing the permit to cross main streams and wetlands. Some of the permits will now have to be approved by the Army Corps of Engineers. So they're saying this is going to be complete by the end of this year, and there's no way. And they're also putting in the news that it's 92% done, and it's not 92% done at at all. Well, according to FERC, their compliance report shows in terms of linear project completion, they're only 52% to final restoration.
5: You've said that you don't have faith that the Biden administration will help you stop the pipeline which makes sense since he's a supporter of gas fracking. What about grassroots support?
4: All I hear is it's going to come in anyway. I don't know why you're still out there fighting that thing, because it's going to come in anyway. It's a reality that so many people like me live in all the time. You know, it's going to come in anyway. We have no power. We have no voice. If anything, this meeting of folks um, has taught me is that there is fight out there. You know what I mean? It keeps your spark alive, and then you help keep someone else's spark alive. Uh, It's so heartwarming for people to come from other places to uh, help with this. I've met, you know, just had good conversations with amazing people. And with this, like, I've learned about these other pipelines and other places and other people's struggles. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's been great. I've met some wonderful
0: people. That was Crystal Mello, one of many tree-setters who helped block construction of the Mountain Valley Frac Gas Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. Learn more about groups opposing the pipeline by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZBC in Newton, Massachusetts, WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika Ta. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.